Good evening. It's good to be with you this evening. Good to see a good crowd here this evening. Hope everyone's had a good afternoon. Uh, if you want to get out your Bibles and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 25, that's going to be the primary text that we're going to be looking at this evening. Uh, we've been studying and looking at the life of David in order to see uh, a glimpse of who Jesus was going to be whenever Jesus came to the earth. As we've said before, David shines as a bright light of what is to come in Jesus. And that's what we have seen throughout this story with his anointing, with his defeat of Goliath, and with his quick rise and then fall in popularity. Uh, And he is now on the run from Saul. Uh, Chapter 24, he is given an opportunity to kill Saul, which is... Uh, odd to us that he's hiding in a cave on the run from Saul and here comes Saul into the cave to go to the bathroom and you remember that story. Uh, David cuts off part of his garment and then comes out and shows it to Saul and Saul even says with his own mouth, surely you will be the king of Israel. He gives him the credit and says, you are a greater man than I am. And it seems like at this point, everything's going to go well for David. Uh, and in fact, that's what we have happened. Uh, chapter 25 is a transitional chapter in the story of David. His fall seems to be coming to an end. And now he's ready to slowly rise. The very first words, though, of chapter 25 are concerning. If you look at verse 1 of chapter 25, it says, Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. So Samuel died. Samuel's been this great Bible character for us, from the beginning of this book, which we call 1 Samuel, right? Uh, we accredit Samuel for the book, but there's no way he could have wrote it because he dies here in 1 Samuel 25, right? We get 2 Samuel after this. So Samuel's not around to write all of these things down, but Samuel is such a great man that he is accredited with a name in, in these books as the one who is the source or the beginning of this regeneration of Israel, which is what we see in the book of 1 Samuel. Samuel is a great man. He is a great prophet. Uh, he, is, he is a judge who became a prophet that anointed the kings of Israel. And now he is dead. So what's going to happen next in this story? In chapter 24, Saul was able to be put to death. He had been rising up against David, the Lord's anointed. David had a chance to to wipe him out, but he didn't. Saul lives. In the next chapter, Samuel dies. Talk about a plot twist, right? (laughs) You're reading this story, and you get to this point, and Saul's still alive, and you're like... But we want David to be king. Why is Saul still alive? And then Samuel dies and... Well, what's going to happen now? What's going to happen to Israel now that they're losing this main influencer of Israel? Samuel is gone. And David, it seems, is still on the run. Notice where David goes. 
the wilderness of Paran. Paran is the wilderness that's south of Israel and Judah. The wilderness that we all know of where Israel wandered for 40 years. The wilderness where Moses died and where the people of Israel came up out of that wilderness into the promised land to conquer their enemies and to be given that promised land by God. And here we have in this scene David going down into this wilderness of Paran. But what's interesting about this text is, as you go into the next few verses, it doesn't tell us anything about his time in the wilderness of Paran. It just tells us he goes down there, and then it switches to this story where David is in Carmel, which is in Judah. So you get whiplash, right? You know, Saul's almost dead, or Saul's almost killed, but he's not killed, and he's able to keep reigning. Samuel dies, David goes to the wilderness, and then boom, here's David in Carmel. Carmel, which means the fruitful land. Interesting how things have occurred in this story. When we get to verse 2 and 3, two characters are introduced to us. I'd like to read verses 2 and 3. It says, And there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal. You're not laughing. See, the Hebrews would be laughing right now. Nabal means fool. So if I were to read this like the Hebrews would be reading this, I would say, now the name of the man was Fool. Isn't that interesting? Who names their child Fool, really? Uh, Maybe this is a nickname, I don't know. Uh, So the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. So we see the man lives up to his name. He is harsh and badly behaved. He acts like a fool. And that's his name. But he's a Calebite. Caleb. Who is Caleb? Caleb is a man who came out of that wilderness to spy on the promised land and said, this is a good land. This is a fruitful land. This is a land where we ought to go in and God will deliver it to us. This is a man who trusted in God. Nabal is a Calebite, but he doesn't trust in God. There's a big contrast here with Nabal being a fool and him being a Calebite. But there's also a contrast between Nabal and his wife, Abigail. How do these two get together, right? You just kind of wonder, was this an arranged marriage? Did she just make a bad mistake and enter into this relationship and couldn't find a way out? We don't know. Nothing's told to us about this. But she is beautiful and she is discerning. Well, it it came about a time when he was going to shear his sheep. And he has thousands of sheep, right? Not only has this guy got the girl, but he's also rich. This breaks my heart. But he's got it. He's, He's got all his sheep There, he's shearing his sheep. And this is a time when the masters of the house who have all this wealth are going to 
have all their harvest, essentially. This is when they are able to accumulate all of their their wealth and understand how good they've done for the year. And this is when they would go to their servants and they would give back to the servants who have served them. Well, David hears about this. And it turns out David has been in Carmel for some time. And he has been watching after Nabal's sheep and goats and shepherds. He has been like a little private army for Nabal. He's been around them all the time and helping them make sure that no robbers come in and that uh, no animals attack any of their uh, herds. So David realizes it's time for those who have served Nabal to be given some form of payment. So David sends some men to Nabal. And he has those men, first of all, address Nabal and say, Peace to you. Peace to your house and peace to all that you have. Respecting Nabal and showing consideration. And then he says, We have helped with protecting your servants out in the fields as they've grazed their flocks. You can ask them about that. And we have come because we've heard you're shearing your sheep and wanted to know if you would like to give us something for our service to you. Well, Nabal, being the wise man that he is, says, wait right here. And he makes him wait. And he makes him wait. This is a power play. (laughs) They come to him in the name of David. And he makes them wait on him. He's not over here with his servants finding out whether this is true. Whether David's men have really helped at all. He comes back to David's servants. And look at what he says. Verse 10 and 11. Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to men who come from where I do not know? Who is David? What kind of rock has he been living under? Who is David? Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. Any Philistine knows that. Who is David? This is ridiculous. He's from Judah. David's from Judah. David is the most famous man in Judah. He obviously knows who David is. as He he claims that David is a runaway slave. A runaway servant who's on the run from his master Saul. That's what he's implying anyways. Who is David? These words were meant as a great insult to David. And they were meant to defy David. It's interesting, we see Pharaoh say the same words to Moses. Who is the Lord? In defiance of the Lord. And here is Nabal in defiance of David. How do you think David's going to react whenever his men return to him? How would you react 
You spent all this time and all this effort serving someone. You've just blessed their house and you've just asked for something. It's not like you've been offensive. I mean, if you have a waiter who has served you and they've done a good job, aren't you going to give them a tip? I mean, we would consider that to be appropriate, right? But here's David having taken care of his shepherds and his sheep, expecting anything and not asking for anything in specific, and him being told, who are you? You're some runaway slave. Being insulted. Notice how Nabal's words are, are put in here. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers. You hear that repetition that's in there? What's his motivation for acting this way? It's all about me. It's all about accumulating more for me. He knows who David is. He refuses to give to David because he's selfish. He's focusing on himself. And David hears these words. And the first words out of David's mouth are, Every man strap on his sword. David's got 600 men. 600. And after saying that, apparently he relents a little and says, Okay, 200 of you, stay back here with the baggage. Me and my 400 will go up against Nabal. Nabal is not a king. Nabal is a master of a house. He's rich, but he doesn't have warriors. David's got a a small army at his back, and he's going out to fight against Nabal, who's just this rich man. This is a little bit of overkill, you might say. It's like taking a flamethrower to kill that spider that you found on your pillow, right? (laughs) We've all thought about it. Uh, You know, he's, he's upset about the insult that he's been given, and he is going to let Nabal know who David really is. Who really is the son of Jesse? He is not a little kid. He is a grown man who is ready to come in and slaughter Nabal and all his household. Well, if we go back to Nabal's house, we get a scene that's revealed to us about his wife. Remember Abigail, the the beautiful, discerning woman? Well, it turns out she didn't know anything about this interaction between Nabal and the servants of David. And her own servant comes to, uh, to Abigail and lets Abigail know about everything that David did and everything that Nabal has responded in insult to David's servants. In fact, the servant reveals that David and his men were exceedingly good. They were like a wall around them by day or by night. They were taking good care of the servants. And if Nabal had taken the time to ask or to listen to his servants, he would have understood these people are worthy of a good gift. Now, 
I want you to think for just a second about how Abigail feels as she hears that her foolish husband, who the servant even admits he is such a worthless man that no one can talk to him. Her foolish husband, who knows what he's done to her in the past, that foolish husband has just made David angry. And the servant says, David has surely going to come and wipe out Nabal's household. How would Abigail feel? How would you feel if you were Abigail? What would you be thinking about that time? Lord, you've answered all of my prayers. Thank you so much. Make it quick, you know. Honey, I'm going to go to the store in the town real quick. I'll be back after the feast. You go ahead and eat without me, right? Abigail doesn't do that at all. The text tells us that Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five seahs of parched grain and a hundred clusters of raisin and two hundred cakes of figs and laid them on a donkey. What a woman. She sees that her own household, the household of Nabal and her own husband are in danger. And she doesn't miss a beat. She immediately goes out there. She piles up things on the donkey. Maybe she's got servants helping her, but you know, you just picture this woman putting all this stuff up there, right? And she's getting everything ready to, to make preparations to go out and to appease David. She runs out with her donkey and all this stuff. And you imagine her approaching 400 armed men. What is she going to do now? This doesn't seem like a good idea. <laughs> what Abigail does next is hop off of her donkey Get onto her feet. Get off. Get on. Get on the ground. And ask David for mercy. Before we look at her words, I want to notice what David is saying as he is riding up to Abigail with his four hundred men. Have you ever been real angry at somebody before? And maybe you have to go and you have to talk to that person. And maybe you're just sitting there muttering, you know. Like, oh man, whenever I see him, I'm going to just, you know, let him have it, right? You've got all these things that are coming out in your anger. Things that you'll probably never do. But things that you think you're going to do because you're really angry, right? Well, the words of David as he is riding to Nabal's house show... Why he is a special individual. Verse 22, he makes an oath. But in his oath he says, God do so to the enemies of David and more also, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. That's an interesting oath. 
for David to make. We've seen men make oaths in the past that have cost them their daughters and cost them a lot. They usually, it usually goes more like this. God do so to David and more also if by the end of today I don't do this. Saul's made all kinds of foolish oaths like that. But David doesn't say, God do so to David if I leave one male of all his house alive. David says, God do so to the enemies of David and more also. So if David by some way, some chance, somehow is unable to kill all of the males of his household, God will be on the hook to wipe out all of David's enemies. It's just an interesting oath, an interesting thing for him to say as Abigail is now approached him and is now about to say what she's about to say. I'd like to read some of her words. In verse 24, it says, She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow, Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as navel. Her words are very poetic. Some of the things she says, especially that last part, let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal, are going to prove extremely poetic. Especially knowing what David just said. But notice her humility. What a woman this is. Abigail, you imagine she's rich. She's got to be glamorous. She's she's the wife of Nabal. She's got servants. And here she is getting down off her donkey and falling down at the feet of David and saying, on me alone be the guilt. It's my fault. I did not see your servants. I would have handled things differently. You see her pleading with David and willing to take the guilt for herself. But she also blesses David and says, Let let not your your let you not seek your own blood and your own blood guilt. Don't go after this man yourself. Don't seek your own justice, David. You can't do that. The Lord has restrained you from doing that. It's interesting that she says it that way. The Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand. He's just let Saul go. Saul who was about to kill him. And now here he is confronted with Nabal's wife. And she's saying, 
God is restraining you from seeking your own vengeance. From saving with your own hand. She doesn't end there though. She goes on, and we're not going to read all of it, but she goes on to say that David is going to be blessed and that his house will be a sure house. That's an allusion to 2 Samuel chapter 7 where God tells David, I will establish your house. I will establish your kingdom all the way until we get to Jesus who is the ultimate fulfillment of that promise. She is the original prophesier of that event and that blessing to mankind. The house of David will be a sure house. What a woman she is. She is the prophet that David needed during this time. David responds to her by blessing her and thanking her and thanking God for her, for what has happened. She returns to her home and David returns back to to where he is staying. When she gets back, she finds that worthless husband of hers drunk from the huge feast he had like a feast of a king. doesn't seem like he's even noticed that she's gone or that any of his stuff is missing. He had so much. And instead of telling the drunk fool that he was about to be slaughtered, she waits till morning. And when she tells him what David was about to do to him, the text says, his heart became like stone. And he dies ten days later. Nabal dies anyways. David didn't have to lift a finger. God did so to David's enemy. As David had said. It's a very interesting and and amazing story. But why is this here? Why is this here? You know... As Israel is reading their history about who David is, and they're reading about the story of how the kings came to be, they get to chapter 24 and they see that Saul was not killed by David. Interesting. David's going to stay alive. Saul's going to stay alive. You skip to chapter 26 and it happens again. Saul is not killed by David yet again. And then eventually you get into uh, the end of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, and Saul dies by some other means, and David comes up to be king. But what would this story be teaching Israel as it's fitted here in the Scriptures? Well, first of all, the most obvious is, who would want to be like Nabal? This is obviously a lesson for Israel to learn from the foolish man. The man whose name is fool, who thinks that it's a good idea to accumulate as much wealth as he possibly can, even if it means cutting short those who have served him. A man whose only goal or mission in life is to be self-serving. This is a lesson for them to understand what it means to love your neighbors as they have been commanded to do in the law. But also there's a message here about Abigail. Who wouldn't want to be like Abigail, right? What a woman she is. 
She's beautiful. She's discerning. She's willing to stand up and have a loving and compassionate heart for her husband and for her household. You know, she takes Nabal's stuff and gives it to David without asking her husband. She's willing to risk his own foolishness and his wrath against her in order to serve him, in order to serve his household. And she's also willing to put herself out there to help David, who is coming up against her household. She has humility and tact as she approaches him. But this story also reveals something else to us. In the story of David, we see a transformation take place here. Up until chapter 24, David's been on the run. He's been fleeing from Saul, hiding in caves, running even to the land of the Philistines, being sold out by his own Israelites, his own Judeans. All that's about to come to an end. In fact... After Samuel dies and this whole thing happens with Nabal, David goes on the aggression. The next time that David spares Saul's life, it's not while he's hiding from Saul. He goes into Saul's camp, right into the middle of the camp where Saul is, and takes his spear and his water jug from him. He gets boldness after this. Remember how Israel came up out of the Canaan land to conquer We see David come out of the wilderness. They came into the Canaan land. We see David come out of the wilderness into the Canaan land and he's starting to conquer. He's starting to rise in power. We even see David go back into Gath, unafraid of Achish and the Philistines. And he's able to deceive them in order to live and prosper in their land. This story shows us a transformation of David. And now he's not going to be relying on Samuel anymore. He can now see that God is able to send him word and understanding through anyone. Even someone who is the wife of his own enemy. What an interesting story. An interesting transformation in the life of David. But as we've said before, we can see Jesus in this text. We can see Jesus in a lot of what goes on in the life of David. Jesus also was insulted greatly and spit upon. Do you remember them wagging their heads at Him? He saved others. He can save Himself. Jesus was insulted greatly when all He did was bless All he got back were insults. David was taught in this story to put his trust in God to conquer his enemies. You might look at it like this. Abigail taught David to act like Jesus would act when he came on earth. Jesus did not take his own vengeance against his enemies. Jesus instead showed love toward them. Instead of deciding He is the judge of mankind and coming down here to inflict wrath on those who sin against Him, He gives the judgment to God. His words in John 12, 
verse 46 through 50, pretty much sum it up. I have come into the world as a light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken of my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a command, what, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his command is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father told me. Jesus Himself says, I did not come into this world to inflict wrath and to get justice by my own hand. I'm giving the justice to God. The lesson that David had to learn, we see in Jesus. He's even on the cross and He could have called 10,000 angels, right? We talk about that. We sing about that. He could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the earth and set Him free. But He died alone for you and me. Jesus had great restraint and was merciful and not willing to slaughter those who insulted Him and who acted out against Him. So God teaches David to act like Jesus would one day act. Very similar to what we saw earlier in Him teaching Him and and letting Him fall to become a shepherd of people. So what can we learn from this text? What kind of applications can we find for ourselves as we study together in the book of 1 Samuel? Well, first of all, we need to listen. You know, Nabal really failed at this, didn't he? Nabal refused to listen. This is why he is given the name fool. He is harsh. He is mean. He is unwilling to listen. The servant himself says he's a worthless man who nobody can talk to. We don't want to be like that. There's a contrast in the text with Nabal and Abigail. Abigail's willing to listen to her servant and go out and talk to David. But also there's a contrast with David and Nabal. David in all his wrath and all his fury is willing to listen to Abigail and to calm down and to change course. He doesn't act foolishly because he's willing to listen to what others have to say to Him. Now, husbands and wives, you may be married to someone who has a hard time with this. Like Jenna does. right? Everybody. We all struggle with dealing with each other and, and getting others to listen to us when we have something important to say. Some of you may have a harder time than others. Notice the way that Abigail acts toward Nabal. Abigail is different. Abigail is discerning. 
Abigail is wise in her decision making. She thinks through what's going to happen and she is very selfless. Nabal's self-focused. Nabal doesn't discern anything. But look at Abigail. She considers what is right and what is good and makes the right choice hastily. Nabal wasn't seeking to appease or to help out his neighbor and to show love. He wasn't looking at the long term, but Abigail knew what was best. Abigail knew that God is a a rewarder of those who do good. She's even willing to help David. David himself needed a little bit of help in discerning what to do. And she provides David with that help. Don't we all struggle with discerning? Trying to figure out what's right, what the right course is, what we should do next. We've all had to deal with some Nabal, right? I've known a a young lady who uh, made a terrible decision. Got pregnant out of wedlock. Married the, the baby's father. Terrible mistake. Terrible mistake. What was she going to do next? Well, what she chose to do was try to get out of the marriage. Well, she knew the Bible. She knew that she couldn't just divorce him without just cause, without the right reason. So she tries to get him to commit adultery. It's not discerning. It's not good. What great faith she had. She was willing to be faithful to her end of the covenant that she made with her husband. She was willing to look out for his best interest in order to keep him safe. We are called to be the same way. We are called to serve not only those who love us and who do good to us, but even our enemies. We are called to be discerning. In fact, that's that's the very thing Paul prays for the Philippians. He prays that they would grow in love and knowledge and all discernment so that they could approve what is excellent and be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. That's what he wants us to have as well. We need to grow in love and knowledge and discernment and be like Abigail in that sense. But finally, what we learn in this text is that God is sovereign. God is sovereign. He is able to control things to work out for the good of His anointed and His people. God is able to use anyone to accomplish anything. He used Abigail. In fact, He used an unnamed servant to talk to Abigail, to use Abigail to talk to David to teach David. God's in control of the whole thing. God is giving David a great inheritance. The end of the story doesn't end with Nabal dying. 
The text tells us that Abigail is asked by David to marry David, and she says yes. All that Nabal has is now David's. He has a share in Nabal's property. God is providing for David in what seems like the most unlikely way. He's allowing for David to to start the rise to success and to kingship. We need to recognize God is in control. Like David and had to learn, we have to learn to let God handle justice. That's the way Jesus acted on earth and we are supposed to be following Jesus. We're supposed to be the kind of people who love our enemies. Paul said this in Romans 12, verse 17 through 21. The last text this this evening. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So we have a decision to make. Are we going to be like Abigail? Or are we going to be like Nabal? The decision is yours. You get to decide how you act in your own life. I hope we all choose to be like Abigail. If there's anybody here this evening who has not obeyed the gospel, if you're an enemy of God's at this time, you've sinned against Him and you know that you need to make a change in order to align yourself with Him, He's willing to accept you and show love to you. Just like He has to me and many of those here. If you need to make that change tonight, please let it be known. Please come forward as we stand and as we sing.